This is another episode of WHGM Gold's newest radio show, Tricks, Techniques, and Some Real Magic. I'm your presenter, Dr. Matt Waxman, MD, PhD, internal medicine and addiction doctor. Uh, My offices are at 424 South Stoke Street, Haverty Grace, Maryland. This is being recorded at the lavish studios of Four Wheels Studio. It actually has its own staff that tends to interrupt during the early part, during the trick section. Uh, there's uh, Jacques, the wine steward. Um, no, he, he, he knows I don't like alcohol, but, I mean, he's here, so he has to try to do something. A whole bottle of champagne. Look, I'm not going to drink a teaspoon of that. Oh, and he's mixing up with maraschino cherry juice. It's a Matty Mimosa. He created it just for me. Um, and it's kind of beautiful, actually. But no, I, I just don't drink that. And and now the barista's coming by. Oh, man. This staff, you just can't stop him. And now he's making a latte um, with a bit of hazelnut syrup and just a touch of licorice with it. And latte art on top of it. Oh, it's a little Mona Lisa. I kind of hate to drink it and mess up the latte art, but I actually love coffee beverages. Thank you. Mm. And I do a lot better on the podcast if I, not radio show, if I have a little bit of refreshments. Thank you. Oh, and oh my God, that's the most wonderful pastry. I wish I could tell you where it's from, but they haven't paid any sponsorship, so I, I can't do that. Um, but, mm, it's delicious. Uh, you really should be here, actually, with that. The trick for today comes from Diana Deutsch of the University of California. She discovered in 1995 that sometimes speech is processed by the brain into music, even when it's not meant to be music. She is still investigating why this occurs. However, I have an idea. I'm calling the epiglottis hypothesis. There's a part of the throat called the epiglottis which decides whether stuff is going to go down the lungs or go down the food tube down to the stomach. Now, there's part of the brain which is also going to be making a similar decision whether something's going into speech or not going into speech. There's one tiny part of the brain involved with processing speech. We know this from stroke and other data. Some people have strokes just in this small area of the brain. They nod nicely, and you can tell no new information is getting in, reception, and they're not able to understand new speech, aphasia. It's a receptive aphasia. This is quite debilitating, and these people can only go into customer service and, of course, political jobs. And in these jobs, they're surrounded by people who are yelling at them all day, and they just nod sweetly, and none of it gets in. This is actually a very difficult stroke to recover from. Hey, but then why would they want to recover from it? Huh, science marches on. There's a large bit of the brain which is involved with music. It is most of the rest of the brain. So if something isn't going into speech, it's kind of going into music. Is something you're concentrating on and want to know what it is, yeah, it's going into speech, not music. So, for example, computers, when they want to warn an airline pilot in a cockpit, use actual speech as a warning. And because this is a warning, pilots aren't going to interpret it as music. Something like, you're going to die. See, 
that isn't going to get turned into music, no matter how many times it's repeated. However, the other thing about the epiglottis hypothesis is the word epiglottis is uniquely good for this. It's not a word that you normally use. It's rather odd. It sounds funny anyway, and it doesn't inspire any emotion at all, unless maybe you got it wrong on a medical test, but that's not most of us. I'm not mentioning about that. So let's give it a try. Epiglottis, 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 epi yeah, see, it's already turned into something that sound rather than speech. Now, let's try that a little bit longer. Epiglottis, 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 epiglottis. See, it gets turned into music. This is the second half of Tricks, Techniques, and Real Magic about the research. This is the papers I presented at a meeting in December. I followed people in methadone treatment and suboxone treatment, and boy, do they get upset when you follow them. I had the cops sent after me so many times. No, I'm kidding about that. By followed, I mean I looked at their charts and saw how they did over time. And I found, like everybody else in the medical literature, that people leave treatment programs periodically. Uh, methadone is a, is a narcotic. People in methadone programs come in daily, get dosed with the methadone, and then don't go out and get other drugs, typically. Uh, death rates fall between 50 to 90% the moment you're in methadone treatment. Also, crime... Other problems drop off at least that much while in methadone, and people get their lives together. There's some other things I presented at the meeting I'll get to. Now, Suboxone is a combination of two drugs, one of which is a long-acting narcotic, similar to methadone, but not as potent, and its overdose effect is less. Also, its effect on pain, uh, euphoria, and other features of narcotics is also less with buprenorphine. It's called a partial a partially active drug because it isn't as active as the other ones. And no matter how much you give, there's a limit to how much effect you get with the buprenorphine. In Suboxone, there is also a plain narcotic blocker called naloxone. The two of them together give a medium amount of narcotic effect, but block the effect of other narcotics given. This is not true of other narcotics. It's also not true of methadone. Now, in either, death rates from overdose pretty much stop if you're in treatment. There's a minimum of a 50% reduction, and most reports are around 80 to 90% reduction. And the places I've worked at, it's, it's really like the 90% reduction. Also, people tend to get their lives together. There's less crime. There's less other disruption, and people can just get on with their lives. That's established. Everybody finds that. Now, I, however, followed the people in these programs, and boy, do they get upset with you if they see you following them. No, I'm kidding about that. By that, I mean I looked at their charts and saw how they did over time. What I found was pretty much like everybody else found. People tend to just leave the programs periodically. About 15% of people in methadone program leave after about a day, and another 10% leave in about one to two months, another 10% six months to a year, and another 10% uh, in a few years. 
So it's over 50% stay there long-term five years or more, and there's another drop-off that occurs at about seven years. Suboxone has double the rate at each step. So instead of 15%, there's 30% that leave after a day. It's about 10% who leave a little bit faster at about one week, one month, and one year. So there's less people out at one year, or about half as many in the Suboxone group as the Methadone group. And they have another drop-off like they did in the Methadone group, and it's at three and a half instead of seven years. So it's about double in each way. But here's the thing. People come back. And in both groups, the vast majority, at least two-thirds, do better every time they come back by every measure. Now, this means both that people drop off less over time and they do better every time they come back. Everybody's going to get off drugs. Everybody's going to recover if they stay alive and get back into treatment enough. What I don't see are the 90% of people with narcotic problems, with cigarette smoking, with obesity, that don't bother to come in for treatment. So that's one of the reasons for the radio show is to tell people it's not a hopeless situation at all, that people aren't on these drugs forever, and that everybody gets better. And people get way better, like not having a risk of death, the moment they get into the treatment. It's been underserved, and people have not appreciated how good treatment is. So, just wanted to share that with you. Now, there's another thing on this, is that one of the possibilities of this whole curve, that people do better when they get back, that people are in a process, is that it's a learning curve, that people learn from their mistakes and do better over time. Let's test that out. This is the third part of the show, Real Magic, which is, of course, my favorite. Here's where I tell you something to try, and we find out whether it works or not. We do that by you you're calling the station to say whether it worked or not, but you need to have done it first. That phone number for calling the studio is 410-939-9446. 410-939-WHGM. What a coincidence! And the experiment today is whether I know how to fix all addictions immediately. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. Here's what worked for me, and I need to know whether this works for everybody else or not. You think of a thing which you do that you'd rather not do. In my case, it's eating french fries for and gaining weight. And in you, it could be anything. Eating, smoking, drinking, drugs of abuse. First, you think of four to five things which are triggers for doing them, and four or five bad things that happen from it. And you write them down. Hopefully not driving while doing it. So these come in categories, and today I'll elaborate by going with actual categories of things in these groups. So in the positive group, where you triggers for doing things that you don't want to do, some categories are an actual feeling, physically, of hunger for french fries in this case. Not that hard to follow. Uh, feeling something's right, a justification, a habit, uh, always doing it that way. Habit's the best word. Negative, feeling a withdrawal, feeling deprivation and sadness from not having the french fries. And justification, well, I ought to be able to eat them. I'm doing all this dieting thing. This radio show's hard work. Then, on the other side of the coin, you'll have all the negatives. Fear 
I'm going to die if I eat these french fries. Yeah, considering my cholesterol and high blood pressure, yeah, I'm not making that up, and I'm not exaggerating. Reprimands and guilt. I shouldn't have done that. I had 20 pounds off, and I gained it all back. Regret, also with that, guilt. I feel very bad about having done that. Sadness. I used to look thinner. I used to be able to get around better. My knees hurt less. So then the experiment is to go from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other, and make an association between the trigger and the regret. Feeling wanting the french fries, fear of dying. Thinking about the french fry places on the road, thinking about how bad I feel having gained the weight back. Thinking about, well, I usually have french fries middle of the day, and sadness, and sadness about not being able to eat french fries without blowing up like a blimp. Mm, yeah, maybe it might be better saying sadness about not looking and feeling my best. How about that one? Yeah, it's a little better. But we aren't going to know whether this works unless you share your results. That's again at WHMG Gold 410-939-9446, 410-939-WHGM. Thank you.